Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 346, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Dracars. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Kathy, Daniel, and Pamela for signing up already. Barely a year after putting down Thorkell's rebellion, Canute was sailing for Denmark, again, to fight in a war again. Now, obviously, this wasn't great, but our English sources get pretty quiet about what happens next. The Scandinavian sources say more, but they also each say a different thing, and sometimes they directly contradict each other. But what happens next, Knut's war for the throne of Denmark, is a pivotal moment for the history of England, Britain, and honestly, large portions of Europe. So despite the fact that we have conflicting sources, I'm going to do my best to tell you this story, and what follows is my best shot at a coherent tale that can be put together from the various sources that are available. Now, the biggest source is a Scandinavian document called the Newt's Drapa, but I'm also going to be drawing heavily from Snorri Sturluson's Heim Kringla and supplementing that with material from other sagas and from other records in the region. And as for our old standby, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle... Well, the scribes of the Chronicle gave us a total of two sentences for this entire conflict, so most of this is coming from the sagas and other related documents from the north. Okay, here we go. And according to Snorri Sturluson, all of this begins with a bit of political intrigue. Jarl Ulf, who had been governing Denmark alongside Canute's son, Hartha Canute, had been trying to warn King Canute that Denmark was in danger every time the king left for England. Because not only was Canute weakening the defenses of Denmark by not being there, he was also dishonoring his people because he was giving his attention to a foreign land. Snorri claims that Ulf told Canute during one of these discussions that, quote, former kings thought it honor and power enough to rule over the Danish kingdom alone, end quote. As in, dance with the lady who brought you. But this wasn't just a matter of honor. There were also external threats that needed the attention of the king. And in particular, Norway and Sweden were looking like they were going to be a serious problem. And yet Canute was busy in England doing something. But whatever he was doing wasn't protecting Denmark. And for Jarl Ulf, that was the last straw. Denmark needed a king. And Canute apparently didn't want that job. And this wasn't just about appearances. It wasn't just a matter of honor and the Danish people being like, hey, what, are we not good enough for you? Canute also very well may have been neglecting his duties because it looks like England was possibly mired in a protracted war with Scotland, as well as possibly an on-again, off-again conflict with Wales. And that would mean that Denmark was being functionally abandoned as Canute directed his attentions to those conflicts. But for the Danish people, that was a situation that couldn't hold forever. But despite these problems, Jarl Ulf couldn't just oust Canute either. The Danish nobility wouldn't accept it, and such a move would risk launching Denmark into another civil war. What Ulf needed was a legitimate replacement and a lawful way of making the switch from Canute to that replacement. Now, Canute's son, Hartha Canute, was the obvious choice here. He was already in Denmark, and he was actually already under Ulf's control. 
but they still needed a justification. And Snorri tells us that it was Queen Emma who solved that particular obstacle, which honestly shouldn't be that much of a surprise, given how skilled she was at getting her children into positions of power. And according to Snorri, Queen Emma nabbed the king's signet, and then she had a letter drafted in Canute's name, stating that Hartha Canute should reign as king of Denmark, and also that he should remain entrusted to the care of Jarl Ulf. After the letter was completed, she marked it with the king's stolen seal and sent it north. Jarl Ulf then took this letter to the great thing and presented it to the gathered nobles as a genuine representation of the king's wishes. And there, he made the case that it was time for Denmark to have its own king. Upon hearing this, many of the assembled nobles agreed, and Hartha Canute was proclaimed King Hartha Canute of Denmark. And apparently, Jarl Ulf had been working on this for quite a while. And also, he hadn't been doing it alone. His brother, Eglaf, had disappeared from the witness lists without any comment years earlier, having apparently left his post as an elderman of Mercia. But suddenly, after this event, we see Eglaf in Denmark, standing alongside his brother, Ulf, as rebels. And this whole situation should have been a masterstroke for Ulf. It was a nearly flawless and possibly bloodless seizing of the throne of Denmark, and it took advantage of the fact that King Canute was far away and distracted. However, not long after this happened, King Olaf of Norway launched a surprise attack on Denmark. A massive fleet of Norse ships appeared off the coast of Seeland, and the forces disembarked and immediately invaded the surrounding countryside. The Norse plundered and ravaged without mercy. Snorri describes it thusly, quote, The country people were severely treated. Some were killed, some bound and dragged to the ships. All who could do so took to flight and made no opposition. King Olaf committed there the greatest ravages, end quote. He goes on to tell us that Jarl Ulf and King Hartha Canute rushed to Jutland, the center of their own military strength, and they began to call upon their nobles to bring their warbands and fleets. They would assemble a grand army to repel this invasion. But then word came from across the sea. King Anun Jacob of Sweden and his forces were already in the Danish territory of Skuana and laying waste to the lands there. Then things got worse. Snorri tells us that, quote, King Anund continued his march until he met his brother-in-law, King Olaf, end quote. So now he was in Sieland. The combined invasion of Denmark had fully begun. Jarl Ulf and young King Hartha Canute knew that they didn't have the strength to fight both Norway and Sweden. So rather than marching on the invading army, they remained in Jutland and prepared to defend what lands remained to them. And that meant that now King Anund and King Olaf held Sieland unopposed. Snorri tells us that it was at this moment that they announced to the local population that, quote, they intended to conquer Denmark and asked the support of the people of the country for this purpose. And it happened, as we find examples of everywhere, that if hostilities are brought upon the people of a country not strong enough to withstand, the greatest number will submit to the conditions by which peace can be purchased at any rate. So it happened here that many men went into the service of the kings and agreed to submit to them. Wherever they went, they laid the country all around in subjection to them, and otherwise 
laid waste all with fire and sword, end quote. So do you catch what was happening there? The kings of Norway and Sweden had launched a joint invasion for the purpose of conquering Denmark. And once they'd overwhelmed and trashed the defenses of Seeland and Skwana, they would let everyone know that it would be their town that was next. Unless, of course, you wanted to support them. And so, after watching what happened to those who fought back, this became a pretty easy choice for many Danes. And so they decided to welcome their new Norse and Swedish overlords. And the way Snorri tells us, this whole thing seems to have been almost spontaneous. As if Olaf and Anun just happened to be in the area and were like, hey, let's nab this kingdom. But that is highly unlikely. Instead, this invasion had probably been in the works for a while. And the two kings had also likely been in contact with some of the local leadership in Seeland, gaining quiet support. The truth is, this was probably planned for at least a year or two, possibly longer. We know that marriages had already taken place, linking these two forces. But we can also assume that there were also trade deals and other small allegiances and horse trades that had been quietly lining up to guarantee a smooth transition into power. And the plan here, it seems, was to strike Seeland quickly and take the region as a whole, and then dig in and fortify before Canute could raise an army and return to Denmark. By doing so, they might be able to force him to accept their terms. But Canute set sail immediately. And that shouldn't have been possible under normal circumstances, particularly not under the circumstances that Canute was in. He was spread thin over two fractious kingdoms. But it's possible that things had been quieting down for Canute, and the Scandinavian kings just didn't know that. When we look at the witness list in charters, we've been seeing some changes. Increasingly, the English witness lists were being filled with Canute's own followers, which suggests that the king was finally solidifying his hold on England. But the other thing that made this departure possible was probably Earl Godwin, the son of Wolfnoth. Now, Godwin had an unlikely story. Being the son of a noble-turned-pirate wasn't exactly a feather in his cap, but he'd managed to earn Canute's trust early on. And by this point, Godwin's name ranked above all other lay witnesses in the charters. And likely starting in 1022, during Thorkell's rebellion, it was Godwin who ruled England any time Canute had to leave. So more than simply being an important witness and noble, Earl Godwin was effectively running the show. His formal title was Dux et Bailus, which is almost impossible to pronounce, but essentially breaks down to the governor of England. And the word itself is a linguistic cousin to another word you might already know, bailiff. But Godwin was the chief man here. Here's how the records describe his power in court during this period. Quote, What he decreed should be written was written. What he decreed should be erased, was erased. End quote. Against all odds, the son of a pirate had risen to become the top man in England, just under King Canute himself. And according to the Vita Eduardi Regis, he accomplished this not by being bloodthirsty and backstabby, but instead by just being an all-around great dude. We're told that Canute was impressed with Godwin's intelligence, courage, and eloquence. And among the people, Godwin was also known for being gentle and kind to his subordinates, as well as the common folk. We're told that he was humble, 
a gifted governor, and a man who is keen to enact justice and protect the rights of the people. The Vita doesn't tell us that he had a chiseled jawline and abs for days, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was in an earlier draft, because the scribes of the Vita loved them some Godwin. And based on his position and the arc of his life, apparently, so did Canute, because he lavished lands, titles, and power upon this English subordinate. And granted, there are a few things that the scribes are glossing over, and we'll be talking about them later. But on the whole, Earl Godwin was apparently a pretty good guy by Anglo-Saxon noble standards. Which meant that Canute could rely upon him while he dealt with Denmark. And it also meant that he was the kind of man who was unlikely to cause strife with the local nobility while Canute was away. Which was quite important considering the decades of experience that the nobles had with people like Edric Strayona. And so, King Canute sailed north, likely confident that England was in good hands. And he didn't sail alone. He was bringing the full might of the English military with him. And with surprising speed, he arrived in Danish waters, at Limfjord, which was a large inland sea to the north of Jutland. And at the court of Hartha Canute, this news of the arrival of King Canute was, well... It was kind of a mixed bag. Jarl Ulf and King Harthacanute had a large fleet, along with a similarly large army, stationed at Limfjord, ready to join King Canute. And King Canute's fleet would certainly tip the scales in their direction. However, Jarl Ulf had just spent the last few months dabbling in a bit of light treason, and to make matters worse, he got Canute's wife involved in it. At best, this was going to make for some pretty awkward dinner conversations. And maybe it's just me, but if I was Canute, it would be the fact that he drove a wedge in my relationship that would have really pissed me off. So Canute arriving with a large army wasn't exactly the best of news for Jarl Ulf. Because Jarl Ulf was fairly sure he was on Canute's shit list. But in a small stroke of luck, Queen Emma was sailing with him. So Ulf sent a messenger to her and, quote, begged her to find out if the king was angry at them or not, and to let them know, end quote. And Canute, upon hearing this, ignored the fact that Ulf was behaving less like an international politician and more like a child in a schoolyard, and instead demanded to know if Hartha Canute was involved in this plot. And we're told that Ulf's messengers assured him that none of this was Hartha Canute's fault and that the young king didn't have a hand to play in this, but rather was a tool being used by his elders. And so, according to Snorri, Canute pointed out that when they broke with him and gave the title of king to a child, they put themselves at risk of invasion. And then he basically told them that they should be counting their lucky stars that this played out the way it did, because otherwise, they'd all be conquered by now. But, if Hartha Canute wanted reconciliation and he wanted to be rescued from this calamity by his dad, then, quote, let him come to me and lay down the mock title of king he has given himself, end quote. Now, critically, when Canute was speaking about reconciliation, he was just speaking about his son. He wasn't speaking about Ulf. Yikes. Queen Emma then pleaded with her son to come and do as his father asked as she knew that the young king lacked the forces necessary to stand against his father. Upon receiving these messages, Hartha Canute and Ulf turned to their nobles at court, and they told them that King Canute had a fleet in Limfjord, 
and that he wanted them to come to his court and plea for mercy. And the assembled nobles responded, You had me at King Canute has a fleet in Limfjord. And they abandoned Hartha Canute and, quote, streamed to Canute's army. Ulf, Hartha Canute, and their few remaining followers found themselves friendless and between three armies. And, quote, They had but two roads to take, either to go to the king and leave all to his mercy, or to fly the country, end quote. And apparently, no one wanted to live in exile, because the answer was unanimous. Hartha Canute must go and beg his father for mercy. And that's what he did. Hartha Canute came to his father's court, fell to his knees, and surrendered his seal and title. Canute, in response, took his son by the hand and returned him to the position that he'd been in before. He would govern Denmark under Canute. Jarl Ulf, however, didn't go seeking Canute's mercy. Instead, he sent his son, Swain, as a hostage and asked for forgiveness. And I'm guessing the thinking here was that as Swain was Canute's nephew, he wouldn't be killed outright. Whereas Ulf, who wasn't a blood relative, but merely an in-law, might not fare so well. But Canute wasn't impressed by this. He told Swain to leave his court and bring a message to his father. Ulf must assemble his men and ships and bring them to support the great fleet that was assembled at Limfjord. And then, and only then, would they talk of reconciliation. Left with no other options, Jarl Ulf did as he was commanded. And to the south, at Zealand, all of this was terrible news. King Canute was in Danish waters with an enormous fleet that was getting bigger by the day. And he had arrived faster than anyone had anticipated. In fact, King Canute's advance was so swift that he appears to have taken Olaf and a nun completely by surprise. They'd barely begun digging in and turning the people of Seeland over to their cause. And already, Canute was stationed at the northern portion of Jutland. Now all Canute needed to do was round the corner and head south, and he'd be right on top of them. It wasn't supposed to be like this. They were supposed to be in possession of a fortified and secured Seeland. But instead, they were facing the prospect of fighting the full might of the English Ferd, which would be supported by any remaining loyalist Danish forces from Jutland. It became clear that they had really overreached and had severely underestimated their opponent. And so now, what looked like an easy conquest was threatening to become a bloodbath. And in response, the combined Norse-Swedish fleet, along with their Danish rebels, withdrew without even putting up a fight. They fled eastwards past Skuana and entered the southern Baltic Sea. And I'd like to propose something here. What if Canute's super-fast arrival wasn't in response to King Anund and King Olaf's invasion? What if the Norse and Swedes had launched their attack, not knowing that Jarl Ulf and Hartha Knut had flown a flag of rebellion? What if Canute was sailing towards another civil war, but thanks to the invasion fleet, his Danish subjects were suddenly super motivated to put all that behind them and swear fealty to Canute once again? That certainly would explain why he appeared faster than the Norse and Swedes expected. It also would explain why the Chronicle speaks of King Canute going north to fight Jarl Ulf and Elderman Eglaf, and not King Anund and King Olaf. 
It's possible the King Anund and King Olaf's carefully organized invasion got thoroughly upended, all because two brothers had decided to install a child on the throne at virtually the exact same moment. But regardless of how it happened, King Canute was back in Denmark with a massive fleet before anyone was ready for him. And Snorri tells us that the return of Canute and his ruthless retribution and ravaging of the lands of those who had been disloyal to him caused the numbers of his already sizable army to swell. He was also wielding Scandinavian politics as a weapon against his enemies because he chose Earl Hakon, the son of Eric Lathier, to serve as his second in command. Now, this was the same Earl Hakon who was a claimant to the throne of Norway, but he'd been forced into exile by King Olaf of Norway some years earlier. And I'm sure that Canute's intention here was to find and exploit any divisions that might exist within the Norse army. And as for Earl Hakon, he was probably interested in a little bit of payback. And luckily for him, Canute wasn't about to disappoint him. As Snorri tells us, quote, Canute the Great was at last ready with his great fleet, and left the land and a vast number of men he had, and ships frightfully large. He himself had a dragon ship, so large that it had sixty banks of rowers, and the head was gilt all over. Earl Hakon had another dragon of forty banks, and it also had a gilt figurehead. The sails of both were in stripes of blue, red, and green, and the vessels were painted all above the water stroke, and all that belonged to their equipment was most splendid. They also had many other huge ships remarkably well fitted out, and Grand Sigvald the Skald talks about this in his Song of Canute. Canute is out beneath the sky, Canute of the clear blue eye. The king is out on the ocean's breast, leading his grand fleet from the west. On to the east the ship masts glide, glancing and bright each long ship's side. The conqueror of great Ethelred, Canute is there, his foeman's dread. His dragon with her sails of blue, all bright and brilliant to view, high hoisted on the yard arms wide, carries great Canute over the tide. Brave is the royal progress, fast. The proud ship's keel obeys the mast, dashes through the foam and gains the land, raising a surge on Limfjord's strand. End quote. Canute had a massive fleet, and he was now advancing on the North Swedish forces. And to the east, the two withdrawing fleets had disembarked and encamped alongside the Helga River, translated the Holy River. But Kings Anund and Olaf weren't stupid. They had scouts positioned to warn them of any advancing armies or fleets. And as the sun got low in the sky, suddenly ships were sighted on the horizon. A lot of ships. The scouts rushed to King Anund of Sweden who was stationed nearest, and warned him of Canute's approach. And the king ordered the war horns to sound. His army, which was well-trained, immediately struck their tents and donned their weapons and armor. They quickly boarded their ships and rowed out of the estuary of the river and prepared for battle. But King Anund was also a good ally, and so he sent warning to King Olaf, who was encamped nearby. And he too readied his men and ships. The Norse Swedish fleets were well-trained veteran warriors. And as such, by the time that Knut and his fleet had arrived, they were all in position at sea. But it was also late in the day. And in Knut's estimation, it was just too late to begin the battle. Knut's fleet was massive, but that meant that by necessity, 
They were also stretched out. And normally that might not have been such a problem, but on this particular day, the air was still. And that meant that it would take quite a long time to get them all gathered together in any sort of battle formation. So yeah, it was just too late to fight. This would have to wait until morning. But on the upside, when King Olaf and King Anund readied their ships for battle, they had abandoned the estuary that they'd been using as a harbor. And so, rather than fighting, Knut just ordered his ships to enter that estuary. Well, as many of his ships as he could fit in there. And then he ordered the remainder of his ships to guard the entrance of the harbor so that the Swedes and Norse couldn't get in. They might not be able to fight them today, but at least they could deny them a good night's rest. And then they basically threw a beach party. Quote, a great part of the men went on shore, some for amusement, some to converse with the people of other ships, end quote. But what they didn't know is that King Olaf of Norway left a surprise for them. Before striking camp, he'd ordered some of his scouts to go and sabotage a dam that was positioned far upriver. And as morning came, Knut's men talked, played games, and did whatever they could to amuse themselves while they waited for the impending battle. And they were completely unaware of what was coming their way. Quote, They observed nothing until the water came rushing over them like a waterfall, carrying huge trees which drove in among their ships, damaging all they struck, and the water covered all the fields. The men on shore perished, and many who were in the ships. All who could do it cut their cables so their ships were loose and drove before the stream and were scattered here and there, end quote. It was complete pandemonium. Ships were sunk, ships were pushed into other friendly ships, ships were driven, disorganized, and unprepared into the carefully arranged Swedish and Norse fleets. It was a complete catastrophe. But King Canute still had the larger fleet. So, in spite of the spectacular opener, the battle had only just begun. And so, on land and sea, the fighting raged. And as for which side Jarl Ulf and his brother were on, well, that depends on what source you're reading. The sources can't agree on who he was fighting for at this point, and to be honest, given how opportunistic the man appears to have been, it's pretty easy to imagine him being on either side, or both as things went on. But the sources do agree that the battle at Helga River was a bloodbath. And Snorri tells us that some of the bloodiest fighting centered on King Canute's great dragon ship. The Norse and Swedish ships tied themselves to it. But because the ship's hull was so high, and because it was crewed by the most experienced Huskarls, the invaders simply could not manage to take it. And eventually, Kings Olaf and Anund realized that they had gained as much as they could hope for in this conflict. And so they retreated. The Chronicle tells us that the Swedes retained possession of the field after this battle. But even if those scribes are correct, this conflict was clearly Pyrrhic. Olaf and Anund had been unable to overcome the Danes. And Canute didn't make any further attempts to chase them. Direct open conflict had shown itself to be too costly for everyone. And so, according to some Scandinavian sources, Canute changed his strategy. He withdrew from the Helga and used his fleet to block the Eresund, thus trapping Olaf and Anun's forces in the Baltic. And by locking these fleets in the Baltic, it meant that while the Swedes could go home, 
the Norse were stuck. And King Olaf probably hadn't thought to stock up on supplies just in case there was a reverse siege. I mean, normally in this kind of situation, he might just raid the local countryside for whatever they needed. But Sweden was their ally. And they were also, you know, standing right there. It was a sticky situation. And it was also highly unlikely that they could withstand another brutal fight with the Danes. Especially since they'd already used their trick with the dam. And sure enough, there are no records of any subsequent naval battles in this conflict. Olaf and his men were trapped and just floating in their ships and probably just hoping that Canute would get bored and leave or something. And honestly, it is quite likely that he did get bored. Not only that, but it's likely that he left. We know that he was planning a trip to Rome and that requires a lot of work. Not to mention the fact that he still needed to deal with whatever mess was happening in England and he needed to deal with his rebellious subjects in Denmark. So it's not like he could just stay plonked on the deck of his dragon boat sloshing around an inland sea. He had shit to do. But that's why he had underlings. And his second in command was Hakon Eriksson, a man who had quite the beef with King Olaf. So... While it's very likely that Canute left the fleet after the blockade was established, I wouldn't be surprised if Hakon stuck around, just to make sure it remained strong. And it did. Days passed, then weeks. And chances are, sometime around winter, King Olaf and his Norse fleet realized that they only had one option left. They'd need to abandon their ships and march overland back home. But the route to Norway from Sweden is harsh, even in summer. And this wasn't summer. So with their ships behind them, likely scuttled, Olaf and his men began their journey. A journey that probably killed a good number of them. King Olaf's army was broken, and the Swedes had packed up and given up any hopes of invasion. So that's two problems down for Canute. But there still was the matter of that weasley little schemer, Jarl Ulf. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And we have over 100 extra episodes you can listen to on the members feed. And you can sign up to become a member at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>